The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1968, Episode 7, September through October.
On Monday, September the 16th at EMI Studios, a very interesting session, almost exclusively for Paul's plaintiff new ballad, I Will. It featured three Beatles only, with George not involved. Using a four-track tape machine, Paul, John, and Ringo recorded 67 straight takes of the new song. Paul singing and playing acoustic guitar, Ringo playing maracas and tapping cymbals, and John tapping out a beat with wood on metal. Not all takes were complete, of course, and Paul wasn't entirely settled on the final lyric until late in the day. One, two, three. Who knows how long Can you turn it down in my cans a bit? Given the opportunity and an acoustic guitar, Paul slipped into a few ad-lib songs. He did several times during this session, and only one off-the-cuff song made it onto the Beatles album. It was sliced into a song called Can You Take Me Back. Let's listen in on the session that he did on that day. A one. A two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, baby. Who knows how much you love me?
love you. Tell us all Senorita. about it. <laughs> when I was down in Havana. All these señoras. Prairies and the Prairie Wildflowers. Los Paranoias. <laughs> Los Paranoias. Invite you to. I can't make it. To just enjoy us. I can't make it. Come on, you can do it. it, baby. Come on and join Los Paranoias. Just enjoy us. Los paranoias. Los paranoias. Come on, enjoy us. Harmony. Los paranoias. Come on, enjoy us. Los paranoias.
at EMI Studios, a new song is recorded. The band cut it the afternoon and evening of September 18th and the early morning of the 19th in 22 takes, including overdubs. Yoko and Patty Harrison were among the backing vocalists on this Beatles classic. This is Ken McIntosh on the Roving Remixes, take 41. Yeah. 
On September 19th, all four Beatles were in Studio 2 recording the following George Harrison track. Chris Thomas helps out on harpsichord. I'll just be singing to guide you. Two, three, four. In the stars with all the backing folk. sounds like sarcasm, isn't it? It's the sound of sarcasm. It's, it's pretty nasty, really. Yeah, it really is. George was stuck for one line in the middle until his mother came up with the lyric, What they need is a damn good whacking. George says the song has absolutely nothing to do with policemen. It's just a nasty little song. From a quiet, peaceful man. In late September 1968, the Beatles' authorized biography was published. It was written by Hunter Davies and issued by McGraw Hill Publishing Company. The author, Hunter Davies. I'd interviewed them as a journalist, so I was then doing the Attica column at the time. I'd interviewed Paul, because so Eleanor Rigby knocked me out. But getting to see him then and chatting to him and getting on with him and finding a lot in common, I'd come up with how I thought of the book. I just suggested to him the book should be done now before it's all finished forever, while it's still fresh in your memory. Brian had already been casing me and found out what books I'd done. I mean, Paul next said, don't forget the funny times, and don't forget your books, and don't forget you've done this, and, you know, the graduate bit, you know, that's the way to, not con him, but to show you've done two books. Mm. And one, a novel, was the sort of, not here we go on the motor bush, the novel, was really the sort of their background. 
I had another book. It's about the new rich and the new poor. So I really have been fascinated in both things. But so Brian said, yeah, great, smashing. I uh, brought my agent in and all the heavies, and we signed a contract whereby we agreed to split proceedings between me and the Beatles. My agreement was with Brian. Of course, when Brian died, I got into terrible confusion. But my agreement was with Brian. And I agreed that they agreed would give me every reasonable facility, which, of course, is meaningless, really. At any time, they were fed up. And I agreed to let Brian okay the book. As I always have done as a journalist, let everybody read any quotes. You know, you, don't, you never make up quotes, so why not let them read it? So I went ahead. Lennon was asked about the accuracy of the book's storied accounts. It was bullshit, yeah. Well, it was really bullshit. You know, it was written in the sort of Sunday Times, you know, the Fab Four, and, and no truth was written, and my auntie knocked all the truth bits about my childhood and my mother out, and I allowed her, which is my cop-out, etc., etc. There was nothing about the orgies and the shit that happened on tour and all that, and I wanted a real book to come out, but we all had wives and didn't want to hurt the feelings end of that one, because they still have. What else was left out of her daily book? Well, that, I don't know. I can't remember it. Love Me Do was a better book by Michael Brown on the Beatles. Right. That was a true book. You know, he wrote How We Were, which was bastards. You can't be anything else in a situation of such pressurised. And we took it out on people like Neil, Derek and, and Mal. And that's why underneath their facade, they resent us, but they can never show it, you know, and, and they, won't, they won't believe it when they read it, if it's in print, etc. On Monday, September 23rd, at EMI Studios, work began on Happiness is a Warm Gun. It was, so John said, three different songs, unfinished and sharing not a single theme, woven together to form one complete number. A listen to Happiness is a Warm Gun, originally titled Happiness is a Warm Gun in Your Hand, confirms this. But the decision to weld them into one was clearly made before John brought the song into the studio, for right from first take, it was complete as we know it. Here's some of the work that was recorded on that day for the song. I need a fix cause I'm going down Back to the bits that I left uptown I need a fix cause I'm going down Another superior jump Oh shit. Wrong chord. I need a fix cause I'm going down Back to the bits that I left uptown I need a fix cause I'm going down Mother Superior jumped the gun Mother Superior jumped the gun Yoko, oh no, no Yoko, oh no, yes I need a fix cause I'm going down Back to the bits that I left uptown I need a fix cause I'm going down Mother Superior jumped the gun Mother Superior jumped the gun Mother Superior jumped the gun. Mother Superior jumped the 
the gun Brother Superior jumped the gun Brother Superior jumped the gun Brother Superior jumped the gun Happiness is a warm gun, a Lennon original from the Beatles' White Album produced not by George Martin, but by a young engineer named Chris Thomas. He'd later produced the Sex Pistols, the Pretenders, Pete Townsend, Elton John, and Paul McCartney. Originally titled Happiness is a Warm Gun in Your Hand, the song took 70 takes to record in late September 1968, the White Album's version being an edit of basic track takes 53 and 65 plus overdubs. The next song is actually a fragment of an instrumental that they weren't very sure of, but George's wife Patty liked it and they decided to leave it on the album. Paul plays guitar, bass, and drums. The old honey's this is RM6. Tuesday, October the 1st, in London, the Beatles returned to Trident Studios 
for no other reason than a week's change of scenery. Certainly Trident could not offer the Beatles any more than Abbey Road, now that the latter also had the 8-track facilities. group worked on Paul's song, Honey Pie, with Paul on piano, George on bass, Ringo on drums, and John on electric guitar. Ah, oh, honey pie, my position is tragic, come and show me the magic of your Hollywood song. Now, honey pie, you were driving me frantic. Sail across the Atlantic To be where you belong You became a legend On the silver screen Now you're Recording sessions, as the Beatles recorded, re-re-recorded, re-re-re-recorded, re-re-re-re-recorded. Tensions among the Beatles mounted when Lennon insisted on bringing Ono to the Beatles' recording sessions at Abbey Road Studios. Yeah, well, we're going to listen to it all. And all that talking. Uh, Yoko just moved in. Well, John moved uh, in with Yoko, or she moved in with him. Um, and uh, they were, from that point on, never to be seen without each other. And so she was suddenly in the band. Uh, she didn't start singing or playing, but she was, you know, she was there just as Neil and Mal were there, or George Martin was there. Beatle historian Barry Miles. These were very intimate uh, affairs. This was where the sort of Beatle magic came from. 
And then suddenly there was Yoko sitting there, and it would have almost have been okay if she'd kept quiet, but she didn't. She, she was classically trained in piano, and she could read music, and she put in her oar. You know, and so I was saying to John, well, why do you always use that beat all the time, the same beat, you know? Why don't you do a bit more kind of complex? Neil Aspinall. One of the things I'd done for years, you know, was uh, keep everybody out of the studio, you know, because it's not a playground, you know, it's... Uh, it's a working environment, you know, and um, so there'd never ever really been anybody in the studio that wasn't part of making the music, if you like. Trouble was for us, um, it encroached on our framework that we had going. Basically, it's only ever been the four of us in the studio, maybe with uh, Neil and Mal as the two roadies, or George Martin up in the control room. Often, he only ever came down occasionally, or an engineer came down to fix a mic. But that was it, and in our whole recording career, that had been the setup. Well, the fact that I, it was no longer the happy-go-lucky foursome, fivesome with me, that it used to be. There was another person uh, in the studio whose thoughts were actually, even if they weren't spoken, they were impinging on what we were doing. So it was un it was uncomfortable. It wasn't just that Yoko, um, you know, or op opposed to the idea of having a stranger sitting there there was a definite vibe that's what bothered me it was like a weird vibe because Yoko at that point didn't like I mean maybe now if you talk to her she may say well she likes the Beatles or she liked the Beatles but at that point she didn't really like the Beatles because she saw the Beatles as a something that was between her and John and so the vibe I picked up was that she was kind of like a wedge that was trying to drive itself uh, deeper and deeper between him and us. Nobody before had ever allowed a woman to come to the studio. Yoko Ono not only was at the studio, but she was at John's side. She was like stitched to his side. And I'm watching you from the side, but I think it's amazing. You look like a real nervous wreck. 26-year-old Paul McCartney, for one, was not amused. He was very upset. And this was us, this was our careers, we were the Beatles after all, and here was this girl who'd never really had any of the girlfriends or wives around. And here she was, you know, either on the amp or holding court in a way, you know, it was like we were her courtiers. It was a very embarrassing kind of thing to do. I used to just ask John, what's this about? What is happening here, Yoko's at all the sessions and the... Uh... And he told me straight away, I said, well, you know, when you go on to, to Maureen and you tell her how your day was, you know, takes you like two lines, oh, we had a good day in the studio. And he says, well, we know exactly what's going on. You know, and that's how they started to live. Every moment together. Everybody seemed to be paranoid except for us two who were in the glow of love. You know, everything's clear and open when you're in love and everybody sort of was tense around us and, you know, what what is she doing here at the session or why is she with him and all this sort of madness is going on around us because we just happen to be wanting to be together all the time. Paul's then-girlfriend, Francie Schwartz. One morning, I noticed there was a, an envelope with a typed address on it, no stamp or a return address, and it just said John and Yoko. And they opened they thought it was a piece of fan mail. And they opened it up, and it was this typed, unsigned note that said, you and your Jap tart think you're hot. And John was wounded by it. 
I mean, he he just he loved her. He didn't understand why people could hate her just because she wasn't white and tall and long-legged or whatever else. And Paul bops into the living room and he says, oh, I just did that for a lark. It was from Paul. And John looked at him and that look said it all. It was like, do I know you? See, I presume that uh, I would just be able to carry on and just bring Yoko into our life, but it seemed that I had to, have to be married to them or Yoko, and I chose Yoko. In the fall of 1968, Ono and Lennon moved out of McCartney's home and then spent a few nights in a flat owned by Peter Brown, Apple executive director. And after that, the couple moved in for a week with Neil Aspinall. They then moved out of Neil's flat, moved into a flat owned by Ringo Starr in London's Montague Square. Francie Schwartz's days at McCartney's house were numbered, too, as she soon discovered. Paul and I were talking about his inability to let anyone get under his skin. And um, he said, well, I, I met someone, and I think I've made contact with her. Her name was Linda Eastman, and she was an American rock photographer Paul met at a London club in May 1967. On Monday, October the 7th, at EMI Studios, a 16-and-a-half-hour session in which a new song was started, George's Long, 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 at this point called It's Been a Long, Long, Long Time. The session tapes revealed that George was in a happy mood throughout, laughing, joking, and bursting into busked versions of other songs, including Dear Prudence. The only present Beatles on that day was George, Paul, and Ringo. Paul is playing Hammond organ, and George plays acoustic guitar. And Ringo played the drums. George has said the you in the piece refers to God. The chords he used were from Bob Dylan's Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands, D to E minor, A and D, changed a little. If you listen carefully, there is a sound near the end of the song, best heard on the right stereo channel, which is a bottle of Blue Nun wine rattling away at the top of the Leslie speaker cabinet. It just happened. Paul hit a certain organ note, and the bottle started vibrating.
with your mercury mouth in the missionary times and your eyes like smoke and your prayers like rhymes and your silver cross and your voice like chimes oh who do they think could bury you with your pockets well protected at last and your street car visions which you place on the grass and your flesh like silk and your face like glass who could they get to carry you That lady of the lowlands Where the sad-eyed prophet says that no man comes My warehouse has my Arabian drums Should I Put them by your gate Oh, sad-eyed lady Should I wait With your sheets like metal And your belt like lace And your deck of cards Missing the jack and the ace And your basement clothes And your hollow face Who among them didn't think He could outguess you With your silhouette When the sunlight dims To your eyes Where the moonlight swims And your matchbook songs And your gypsy hymns Who among them Would try to impress you That I'd lead you the The sad-eyed prophets say that no man comes My warehouse has my Arabian drums Should I put them by your gate? Oh, that.
In late evening on Tuesday, October the 8th, at EMI Studios, the Beatles worked on two new songs. The first song lasted until the wee hours of the morning.
Sun came up Wednesday, October 9th, 1968, Lennon's 28th birthday. John and the Beatles were pulling an all-nighter inside Abbey Road Studios. Aside from their studio tans, the band worked on three tracks during that 16-hour marathon. First, Harrison and McCartney overdubbed guitar and vocals and bass, respectively, on George's otherwise completed It's Been a Long, Long, Long Time. The title was later mercifully shortened to Long, Long, Long. The other two tunes were Lennon's, recorded complete with overdubs. I'm so tired in 14 takes. Okay, this is it. Huh. One, two, three. I'm so tired. I haven't slept a wink. I'm so tired. My mind is on the blink. Get up and fix myself a drink No, no, no I'm so tired I don't know what to do I'm so tired My mind is set on you I wonder should I call you But I know what you would do I can't sleep, I can't stop my brain, you know it's three weeks I'm going insane, you know I'd give you everything I've got for a little peace of mind I'm so tired, I'm feeling so upset 
cigarette and curse Sir Walter Raleigh. He was such a stupid get. You'd say I'm putting you on, but it's no joke. It's doing me harm, you know. I can't sleep. I can't stop my brain, you know. It's three weeks. I'm going insane. I'd give you everything I've got for little peace of mind. Give you everything I've got for little peace of mind. Give you everything I've got for little peace of mind. Give you everything I've got for little peace of mind. Give you everything I've got for little peace of mind. After completing the song, I'm so tired. They started to work on the song The Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill and completing it in just three takes. Here's John satirizing the sport of killing in this song with friend Chris Thomas on Mellotron. John plays organ and Yoko helps John with some singing too. Among the backing chorus was Ringo's wife Maureen and Yoko. Yoko went down in rock and roll history as the first person outside the Beatles to sing lead on one of their records. The children asked him if to kill the 9th, while George and John were supervising string overdubs on the songs, Piggies, and Glass Onion, Paul recorded himself, just on acoustic guitar, a song he wrote while in India. Apparently, McCartney got the idea for this song while he was watching a pair of monkeys having sex in the streets of India. He marveled in the simplicity of this natural scenario when compared to the emotional turmoil of human relationships. Why don't we do it in the road? Why don't we do it 
Do you think I could do it better? Later in the evening on October 9th, Paul McCartney went back to EMI Studios, inviting Ken Townsend to join him in Studio One as technical engineer. The great thing about it was that after a certain time at night, nobody wanted to record. Everybody, you know, was sensible, sane people, unlike us. They all wanted to go home, you know, they'd had enough work. But we were just, you know, out of time kind of thing, so we just... We'd, we'd arrive round about sort of, you know, nine or ten or something and start when they were all going home. And the problem was the established engineers there didn't want to work with them. One of the engineers on the LP, The Beatles, was Ken Scott. They, the established engineers were in their 40s, they had families, and they were used to the old EMI method of sessions were 10 in the morning to 1, 2.30 to 5.30, 7 to 10. That gave them time to go to the pub, go see their family, the, the whole thing, Beatles didn't work that way. It was They might not turn up till 5 in the afternoon and will work till 5 or 6 in the morning. So it was only the youngsters that didn't have families that could do it. And what it meant was that we'd have 1, 2 and 3 if we wanted them. The desks were available if we had engineers to staff them. So uh, towards the end of the album, I remember mixing in one room, I think it was Glass Onion, I think in another room there was um, Obladi going on in number 2 with Ken Scott was mixing that um, and then over while they were mixing I had the urge to sort of go and record and I remember just uh, taking Ringo off into a room into number three studio that was available and just saying okay let's do why don't we do it in the road it was taped on the four track machine hello okay Another one? One bad bit in that one. Hey? A bad bit. In one oh, yeah. of the breaks, I got a bit. Ken Townsend rose up through EMI's ranks to become head of the company. When the Beatles first came in, in 1962, Townsend was a second engineer under George Martin. He began by telling me how EMI's strict audio training paradoxically allowed for a free-form approach when it came to solving problems. We had a, a, quite a lot of freedom, but... Um, 
a bit of a law to ourselves, really. <laughs> yeah, but if, if the artist wanted something and you could find a way of doing it, and you did it because right. we were here for the benefit of the artists, right. you know, and um, either worked or didn't work, you right. know. Right. Um, for all his accomplishments, however, one of Townsend's key memories involves getting kicked upstairs into management. His first week away from their sessions, John Lennon called him in for a stern talk. Well, in about 1968-69, I'd been promoted to be manager of technical operations. And um, when the Beatles came in that week, and I was sat down in the office about the second or third day, and I had a phone call from Mal Evans, the, the road manager. He said, oh, Kenny, said, the Beatles want to see you. We've got a very big complaint very, to make. So, so I sort of wobbled, I walked on the corridor, came in, and they all stood behind the mixing console. And it was John Lennon that said to me, um, Mr. Townsend, which is, didn't you call me that? He said, um, very serious complaint. The toilet paper in this place, it's too hard and shiny, and it's got, you can't wipe your bum on it, he said. And not only that, he said, it's got EMI Limited stamped over every sheet. Don't you trust the staff here? But like most stories involving the Beatles, it didn't stop there. Long after the band left, EMI was upgrading a lot of its equipment. They held an auction and called it the sale of the century. It leaked out to the papers that memorabilia would also be sold. Yeah, on the sale of the century, the one of the evening papers in London, on Looker's Diary, said that we were selling memorabilia. And we weren't, we were just selling equipment at this thing. So uh, I found this um, roll of toilet paper and thought we'd stick this on. And it went for 85 pounds. And I appeared on television that night, and I said, well, I should have sold you by the sheet with you. That'd be a bit of a rip-off, wouldn't it? On October 10th, as the music publishing company contract Northern Songs, which covered the Beatles, neared expiration, George Harrison opted not to renew. He formed his own music publishing company titled Sing Song Limited. Ringo Starr, earlier in the year, formed his own music publishing company, Startling Music Limited. October the 11th, 1968, saw a new album released from the Bonzo Dog Band. On the album, Paul McCartney lent his production hand under the pseudonym Apollo C. Vermouth. He also played the ukulele for the Bonzo's only top ten song in the UK, I'm the Urban Spaceman. Though the group had a large cult following, particularly in the UK, they never had an impact on the US charts. <laughs>
more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. Hey everyone, Paul and James here to tell you about one of the best music podcasts online today. It's called Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. Yeah, as longtime listeners of our show know, Take It Away and its hosts, Ryan Brady and Chris Mercer, are the authority on all things Paul McCartney, Wings, and the Beatles. Their five-star rated podcast walks you through every single Paul McCartney release from 1970 to present day. That's every song on every album, including singles, b-sides, bootlegs, and you will most likely hear songs you've never heard before, which is part of the fun of the show. You'll also hear old favorites from new perspectives, all lovingly placed in the context of McCartney's career and the musical sounds of their era. Yeah, and don't miss the amazing interview with Denny Lane, co-founder of Wings and McCartney songwriting collaborator, as well as a slew of other special guest appearances that give some really cool insight into the music that spans the last 50 years. So if you're a McCartney fan, you've found your new favorite show, because I know I have. Seriously, I never miss an episode and neither should you that's take it away the complete paul mccartney archive podcast available for download now wherever you find podcasts check it out now i'm paul kaminsky and i'm james kaminsky and we are the co-hosts of the third men podcast we are a jack white history podcast where we go over the white stripes third man records the list goes on and occasionally we do a funny voice or two So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't even (laughs) lying.